Good evening. The Prime Minister of Sudan is freed after a coup and day two in the hearing into the role of police in the killing of Eric Garner. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, October 26, 2021. And a panel of government advisors today endorsed kid-sized doses of Pfizer's shots for 5 to 11-year-olds. A Food and Drug Administration advisory panel voted unanimously with one abstention that the vaccine's benefits in preventing COVID-19 in that age group outweigh any potential risks. Some of those risks include a heart-related side effect that's been very rare in teens and young adults. Children are at lower risk of severe COVID-19 than older people, but the panel has said they wanted parents to have the choice. The FDA isn't bound by the panel's recommendation and is expected to make its own decision within days. And former weather underground radical David Gilbert has been granted parole after 40 years behind bars for his role in a deadly 1981 Brinks robbery. Gilbert, 76, had been in prison since shortly after the botched robbery of an armored car that killed a guard and two police officers. He became eligible for parole only after his 75 years to life sentence was shortened by Governor Andrew Cuomo in August. Supporters, including his son, San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Boudin, lobbied to have Gilbert join other defendants in the case who have been released from prison. And in international news, Sudan's deposed prime minister and his wife were allowed to return home today after being detained when the military seized power in a coup yesterday. The release of Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdok and his wife followed international condemnation of the coup and calls for the military to release all the government officials who were detained when General Abdel Fattah Burhan seized power on Monday. Meanwhile, Defiant anti-coup protesters continue to barricade roads in Sudan's capital, Khartoum, returning to the streets for a second consecutive day despite attempts at suppression by the military. In his first press conference since the takeover, the coup leader, General Al-Thabaran, said the army had no choice but to sideline politicians who he says were inciting against the armed forces. The freedom and change forces had to bring all these components components together. They were seeking legitimacy simply to hijack the revolution. We have been closely monitoring this situation with deep concern. Even they interfered with the military and armed forces affairs. The military institutions leaders convened and found that it is the beginning of a clear sedition, tribalism. It will lead the country into more division and it will plunge the country into a civil war, an all-out civil war. We are not in pursuit of any office and I would like to remind of the obligations and patriotism, patriotic duties. We had always believed that our unity, our harmony is a linchpin to our security. However, General Abdel Fattah al Buran is head of the military in Sudan. In related news, Sudan's opposition coalition, Forces of Freedom and Change, is calling for civil disobedience against the military takeover. Before the release of Hamdok, National Security Advisor Jay Sullivan said the United States was concerned about events in the East African nation. We have made clear that we are deeply alarmed by the actions taken 
36 hours ago by the Sudanese security forces, including the arrest of multiple civilian officials and the detention of Prime Minister Hamdok. We believe it undermines the country's transition to democratic civilian rule, and we firmly reject the assertions that this is within the authority of the military leadership in Sudan. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, the coup came less than a month before Burhan was supposed to hand the leadership of the sovereign council that runs the country to a civilian, a step that would have decreased the military's hold on power. Reportedly, some of Sudan's neighbors, including Egypt, support the military leaders who seize power in Khartoum. State Department spokesperson Ned Price says the United States is in touch with Egypt. Egypt, and I will just note here what Egypt has said publicly. I will leave, leave it to our partners in Cairo to, to speak for their position. But what they've uh, said publicly is they're working to ensure stability, security. They are closely following these events. They are looking at the safety of the Sudanese people. So we are working closely well, with uh, our Egyptian partners, well, just as we are with... Honestly, can you say if the Egyptians are on board? With I'm not going to speak for other countries. I will just speak for the United States. We are speaking with partners, with allies around the world, including Sudan's neighbors, okay. to establish a common position and to do all we can uh, to see to it that democracy is restored in Sudan. Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, Ned Price State Department spokesperson. Sudan gets about $500 million in humanitarian aid from the United States. Uh, Price says that the cash isn't being frozen, but yesterday a $700 million emergency development fund was put on pause. Price again. USAID, we maintain a significant uh, humanitarian portfolio and a growing development portfolio when it comes to Sudan. In this past fiscal year, the United States provided $60 million in bilateral health and development, development assistance to Sudan, focused on supporting democracy, supporting human rights and governance, food security, civic engagement, conflict mitigation, and global health assistance. Uh, in addition, we provided more than $400 million, $438 million, uh, to be precise, in life-saving humanitarian assistance to Sudan in the last fiscal year. That is not subject to the current assistance pause. The assistance pause at the moment implicates the $700 million in emergency economic support funds or ESF funds that we spoke to yesterday. Um, all of this assistance, uh, and we spoke to this at some length yesterday, uh, is of course provided consistent with the applicable restrictions, including those restrictions that have been in place on Sudan uh, since um, uh, the uh, military coup, uh, which was applied to Sudan in 1989 when the former Bashir regime uh, rose to power. Sure. A follow-up on um, uh, Prime Minister Hamdok, has the United States, have any, has, it, has the United States had any contact with uh, since, since the takeover? We are pressing uh, for the Prime Minister's release. We are pressing for the release of other uh, civilian leaders uh, who have been detained uh, since the start uh, of the military's uh, takeover. Uh, communications, I should say, in Sudan have been difficult, especially in Khartoum. There have been internet blackouts. There have been uh, restrictions uh, when it comes to uh, phone usage. So communications has uh, communications have been difficult. Um, we don't have any um, uh, discussions with Prime Minister Hemdok or, or other members of the civilian uh, government uh, to read out. Um, but we are continuing to press uh, every. Uh, appropriate lever uh, for their release. Do you, um, the, um, General Burhan was saying that he's been well treated, that he's at his home. Uh, do you have any any um, any indication of whether the Prime Minister has been treated well? Uh, I will say what I said yesterday, and that is now that the Prime Minister, now that other members of the civilian-led transitional government remain in military custody, 
it is the military's responsibility to ensure that they are treated well, uh, to ensure their safety, to ensure their security, to ensure uh, their health. Uh, I don't have any updates to provide, but we are watching very closely uh, to uh, see to it uh, that the military does just that. Just, just one. We'll, we'll finish out with Sean and we'll. Just, we'll just, just one. Sorry, just one briefly. Um, uh, the rule of Omar al Bashir. Um, the uh, the idea of uh, handing him over for uh, on the, the charges that he's been uh, been accused of uh, is the United States uh, hopeful that he'll still be handed over? Or is that something that's coming to doubt? Part of a press conference earlier today with Ned Price, he's the uh, spokesperson for the United States State Department. As reported earlier, Prime Minister Hamdok was released just shortly after this press conference. Uh, he's reportedly at his home in Khartoum. The director of the peace group Nonviolence International is Michael Beer. He says General Albaran's reasons for the coup are weak and that Sudan was on its way to democracy before the army stepped in. The Sudanese military is attempting a coup and they have dissolved the shared transition government that's led by Prime Minister Hamdok. They have taken him into uh arrest and detention, as well as some other ministers. And in the last 36 hours have held a press conference to try to justify their action of, uh, um, of a coup and uh, saying that they want to stop a civil war from happening. This is a rather strange declaration by the General Burhan, because if anything is going to lead to a civil war, it's likely to be this coup. There is lots of resistance in the streets. The unions are striking. The central bank workers are striking. Most of the world is in opposition to this, with some notable exceptions of Egypt, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Israel, and Russia. Those five countries have released very soft statements about this coup, and I'm concerned that they may be supporting this coup. Jeffrey Feltman, the top U.S. regional envoy, was there visiting the uh, capital of Sudan just hours before this occurred? That's correct. The United States has been trying to support this government in transition, not as well as I would like the U.S. should be even supporting more strongly. It looks like this general is taking a very strong risk to try this coup because the U.S. and the EU and the Arab League and the Afghan Union are all opposed. The general appears to have basically lied to the American diplomat. Give us some of the historical background. Bashir was the dictator, took over in 89, and then in 2019, he was overthrown, and there was a big change in Sudan. There's been a dramatic change in Sudan that's been very encouraging. In 2019, the population rose up against the dictator, al-Bashir. In conjunction with the military, they kicked that guy out. He was an Islamist dictator with a brutal track record with a number of civil wars going on with minority communities around the country. It was a secular revolution. Women were in significant leadership. It was remarkably disciplined in terms of nonviolent action, despite the killings of the armed forces 
and the dictator. They pressured the military into a transition government for four years in which the military would be in charge for two years and the civilians would then be in charge for the next two years. And that transition was scheduled to happen on November 17th. And this is one of the reasons why analysts and outsiders believe the general moved at this time because the transition to civilian leadership was supposed to happen on November 17th. This is uh, preempting that effort. The 2019 revolution, it was one of the first, if not the first uh, time a popular movement overthrew an Islamic government in uh, in that part of the world? Certainly in modern times. It's a really a remarkable effort. The freedom of the press and freedom of civil society has really blossomed, and the cultural life of Sudan has really blossomed. They have a long history of great universities and intellectual leadership in the Arabic world, and it was resuming and this is a, a great blow to the great changes in Sudan. What do you expect to happen next? We need more than rhetoric from the White House. We need strong action to say that we will not tolerate any of our allies supporting this coup. I'm hoping that will happen. Michael Beer is director of the Peace Group Nonviolence International. Sources say seven people were killed yesterday and the military has cut off the Internet and closed some roads, bridges in the airport in Khartoum. The United Nations Security Council is expected to discuss the situation behind closed doors today. And in Washington, the Democrats' idea for a new billionaire's tax to help pay for President Joe Biden's social services and climate change plan has quickly run into criticism. The Democrats are continuing to press for an agreement to show progress before the president departs later this week to global overseas summits, the G20 among them. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi told lawmakers during a caucus meeting that they were on the verge of something major, transformative, historic and bigger than anything else ever attempted in Congress. But Republican Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says the Democrats just want too much. They do not have a mandate to do this. They're acting like this was the New Deal. Roosevelt had massive majorities. Or it's the Great Society. LBJ had massive majorities. This is a 50-50 Senate, a three-seat majority in the House. The American people are not asking for any of this. And Democrats are scaling back what had been a $3.5 trillion plan, insisting all the new spending will be fully paid for and not pile onto the debt. The White House had to rethink its tax strategy after one key Democrat, Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, objected to her party's initial proposal undoing the Trump-era tax cuts. Sinema also opposed lifting the 21% corporate tax rate with a 50-50 Senate. Biden has no votes to spare in his party. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul Durienzo. One of the officers who wrestled Eric Garner to the ground during his fatal 2014 arrest testified today to falsely charging the Staten Island dad with felony after riding with his lifeless body in an ambulance. NYPD officer Justin D'Amico also claimed he never heard Garner utter the infamous plea, I can't breathe. Justice Committee Director Lydia Cohen says D'Amico was part of a system that killed Garner. The officer D'Amico is a liar. There is no way he didn't hear Eric Gardner say he couldn't breathe 11 times. He was actually pushing down Eric's head at the time. He was at his head. How could he not hear this man say 11 times that he couldn't breathe? 
Officer D'Amico also cut corners by not file, not fi filling out the proper paperwork, like the 250 form required when NYPD officers stop civilians. And Eric Gardner's case illegally stopped Eric. And Officer D'Amico falsified official documents when he falsely charged Eric with a felony. Falsifying documents is a fireable offense. And that was Lydia Cologne. She's from the Justice Committee. Eric's mother, Gwen Carr, reiterated her calls for all the police involved in her son's death to be fired. Lieutenant Bannett is the one who set the stage for Eric to be murdered. He racial profiled black people standing over on Bay Street and immediately called D'Amico to go to the scene to make an arrest. So D'Amico went there to make, he, within his mind, he was there to make an illegal arrest. He was there to target Eric. He got Eric's photo out of a book of targets. So now we're not just only thinking that Eric was targeted. We know that he was targeted. And that is Gwen Carr. The family attorney, Gideon Oliver, says police officer D'Amico's testimony just doesn't sound right. In his testimony yesterday and today, he was not credible. And when he was credible and consistent, what he made clear was that there was a target on Eric Garner's back. Mm -hmm. It was the cops who put it there. It was Lieutenant Bannon and the special operations within the 120th precinct, and they did it because one PP demanded a pound of flesh and put that pressure on Bannon, who then put that pressure on D'Amico, whose job it was, according to Bannon, to go out and enforce laws that Officer D'Amico appears to not understand in the slightest. His testimony did not have the ring of truth. Officer D'Amico included felony charges and other charges, misdemeanor charges too, but to focus on the felony charges, included felony charges in the arrest paperwork that there wasn't even a whiff of probable cause to include. And today he told us that was a mistake. That testimony did not have the ring of truth. Obviously a different story from the rich tax. We were speaking earlier about how the rich are taxed at a very low rate considering the amount of billions that they take in and how that could solve a lot of the problems. In this case, Eric Garner uh, was accused or was being hunted by police because he was selling untaxed cigarettes, uh, a few pennies on each one. It came out that there had been a book of targets with photographs taken. Uh, it was never really clearly explained where these photographs came, came from. They were not mugshots, but were photographs taken by cameras somewhere in the street. It was used by police to go after people they were believed were guilty of quality of life crimes or involved in quality of life crimes like untaxed cigarette sales. Yesterday, Mayor Bill de Blasio spoke about the hearing. He says the city has done all it could. I saw his mom, Gwen Carr, just a few days ago at an event, and I feel for her every time I see her. She's just a really good, warm, decent human being who's been put through hell. It's horrible. Um, it's one of those days in New York City history that just continues to pain us. I wish, I wish somehow it never had happened. But look, um, there's been a lot done to try to address what happened and to try to move us forward, including the retraining of the entire police force 
in de-escalation and a lot of other changes that really have had an impact and really have made us better and made the way that we police our communities better. There's still a lot more to do. But I hope, you know, as, as we end this chapter that we realize we just got to keep at the work so we never have another tragedy like that again. And uh, police have maintained the arrest of Eric Garner was justified, although no evidence he sold a cigarette on that day in 2014 was ever presented. And Mayor de Blasio also said yesterday that after a spate of incidents involving students bringing guns into school buildings, New York City will deploy additional metal detectors to campuses and send extra police personnel during arrival and dismissal. We have a problem in the city. There's too many weapons out there. It's obvious. And look, school safety, NYPD, they, they have done a great job of finding these weapons before they could do any harm, thank God. But there is a problem out there, and that's why we have put these measures in place. And police officials said the city has identified 30 campuses that will immediately see metal detectors on an unannounced rotating basis. There are currently 79 campuses that have permanent metal detectors as well as seven roving metal detectors in operation. It's a big change since last year's unrest after the killing of George Floyd when de Blasio said he was planning to shift school security away from the uniformed forces. Uh, The uniformed force has tasked with that job. But de Blasio said keeping the school safe is primary. The news is good. 92% of school safety agents have been vaccinated. Uh, so that's a really outstanding number. Um, that number puts us at a point where obviously we have the ability, if we need to move uh, some folks around or do some overtime, we can compensate for any needs. But the other thing is adding the random scanning in certain places, adding the presence uh, NYPD at arrival, dismissal outside the building. Uh, all of this allows us to make a lot of impact. And again, I want to add uh, the thanks to Chief Harrison. He's been very, very responsive to the DOE and really been thoughtful about these deployments of the officers outside to help support the efforts inside. Uh, I think it's having a big impact. And the mayor went on to laud his vaccination program, despite yesterday's march over the Brooklyn Bridge by opponents of the mandate, which included many police and other uniformed services. We're going to be really clear and consistent, just like we did with health workers, just like we did with education employees. You have till Friday at five o'clock. If you choose not to get vaccinated, you go on leave without pay. Uh, We move forward from there. But I also remind you the very powerful example of Department of Education that, you know, it's a couple of weeks ago we had that deadline. And then since then, 3,500 DOE employees have gone and gotten vaccinated who missed that original deadline. I think you're going to see some of that. So um, folks who don't get vaccinated, sorry to say they won't get paid. If they want to get paid, we need them to be vaccinated. Uh, Mayor de Blasio. And finally, last night, you might have noticed there was a lot of rain and wind in New York, and the heaviest rain may be over, but New York City has another round of rain and gusty wind in store for tonight. Passing rounds of rain will develop this afternoon and tonight with the steadiest precipitation projected for 7 p.m. to 9 p.m., but it won't be as intense as what the city saw in the morning. Strong winds with gusts as high as 40 miles per hour will blow through the city tonight. Those wind wind gusts are capable of downing trees. Dry weather will return on Wednesday. And that's some of the news for Tuesday, October 26, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Stay dry and thanks for listening.